Well, it is like clockwork, folks. Every four years, pro-lifers and Christians writ large are lectured on how to be pro-life or told they're not really pro-life and all by people who care very little for the plight of the unborn or sometimes actually celebrate abortion. In the lead up to every presidential election, pro-lifers are treated to a cornucopia of articles from woke leftists and Christian progressives, but I repeat myself, who craft political myths on abortion in order to undercut the pro-life movement and its goals. So today, we're going to examine and debunk five political myths on abortion. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, if you haven't given the show a rating and review yet and you've listened enough to benefit from it and you enjoy this content, please consider doing that for us. Leave a five-star review. Tell us what you think. It really helps us reach more people. It helps us move up the charts and it helps this show show up under related content when people are listening to conservative content, Christian content, or pro-life content. Before we get to these political myths on abortion, which are springing up all over the place and you're going to be treated to a whole bevy of articles from people telling you that you're not really pro-life unless you do X, Y, and Z. I just want to highlight our tiers and our perks for patrons of the podcast. Yes, a little bit of a shameless plug, but give me just one minute. We're moving into, obviously, an election, and the results of which, either way, are going to demand a response from the pro-life movement, either by the re-election of Donald Trump, in which case the pro-life movement is propelled forward significantly with very good chances of overturning Roe v. Wade um, and of passing significant legislation to protect life, to protect conscience protections, and to ensure that we will be the pro-life generation. Of course, if the Kamala Harris and Joe Biden ticket wins, the pro-life movement will be set back considerably. And if you don't believe that, go listen to the Joe Biden episode and Kamala Harris episode on this podcast to understand the political threat that that administration would pose to the unborn and to the pro-life movement. And so it's very important for us to get this information out to people about why the pro-life position is true and reasonable to believe, why being pro-life is the only rational option available to you if you want to enshrine and protect your own rights, because as long as a pure majority can create or deny rights to some people, in this case, unborn humans, then there can be no natural rights that apply to all people. If our government is going to continue denying the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, we should not be surprised when our government ignores every other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights, the right to life. And so we want to increase the production value of the show, the amount of episodes that we do and the type of content we produce to change minds to change hearts, to save lives, and to equip pro-life individuals and Christians to stand for life and defend life. So we have lots of fun perks here and uh, sort of tiers uh, at patreon.com forward slash unaborted that you can have access to if you support the show. At $5 a month, you can join our exclusive Facebook group. At $10 a month, you get access to Patreon-exclusive videos. Each tier, of course, gives you all the previous rewards. At $20 a month, you get access to PDFs, transcripts of videos, slides from presentations, and other notes. 
At $35 a month, you get to join an ongoing private video chat small group to talk about culture, faith, state of the pro-life movement, and personal stories of success in saving lives. At $50 a month, you get a free digital download of the Pro-Life Conversation Handbook. This will be your secret weapon to defend the babies. At $75 a month, you get a one-hour, one-on-one Google Hangout with me to role-play arguments over abortion and fill your quiver with tools to defend the unborn. At $100 a month, you will be able to select a question or topic that you would like me to do a full YouTube video response to. At $150 a month, if you have a product or service you want to share with our listeners, you will get the name of your business listed and included in the description of every YouTube video and a short ad script in each podcast episode. And at $300 a month, of which there are only five available, I will fly to your state or city, I will buy you lunch, we will hang out, and I will do a talk in front of any group that you put me in front of, and you get any future products I release, such as books, merchandise, online courses, et cetera, for free. And of course, each each perk, each tier gives you all the previous rewards as well. So go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. And that would just really mean a lot to us. Of course, I try to provide some value to you in that too. But really, you're just supporting the show and helping us change minds and change hearts. So let's debunk these political myths on abortion. And this is like clockwork particularly in presidential election years. People who care very little for the unborn in most circumstances have actually done nothing meaningful to help end abortion. And in other circumstances, they're actually they're actually personally pro-life, but we shouldn't make it illegal. And then on the worst end of the spectrum, they're actually pro-abortion. But all of these myths are crafted by people who don't care all that much that a million babies are killed every year in the most exceptional country that ought to be protecting the natural right to life to all human beings. So the first myth, and this is the most popular one, this is the one you'll hear the most, you'll be the most familiar with. It goes like this. Well, pro-lifer, you know, there's a separation of church and state. Don't you know this? That's very important. So pro-lifers shouldn't be imposing their religious beliefs legislatively. That's part of the founding of this country is the separation of church and state. This is ridiculous. So what's the assumption in this myth? The assumption is that the pro-life position is exclusively a religious one, right? People tell you, stop imposing your pro-life beliefs, your pro-life religious beliefs on others. But is the pro-life position, strictly speaking, a religious one? Is the only ideological foundation for the pro-life position a religious one? No, I don't think so. Because what's the pro-life syllogism? What is the pro-life argument? It is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Therefore, abortion is wrong. It's an argument from science. Is the unborn human? Yes. And it's an argument from human equality. Who counts as one of us? Are all humans persons with equal rights or not? That's the argument. That's not a religious argument. Now, as a Christian, I do believe that the Christian worldview provides the most reasonable and rational foundation for the intrinsic dignity and value of human beings. Because if we're just cosmic pieces of sludge or atoms bouncing around in the universe, then it's hard to explain why we would have any more value than an animal or a plant. However, if an all-knowing, all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God created human beings in his image, then they have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. 
So I think that Christianity provides the best foundation for the pro-life position, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a Christian or a religious individual to prescribe to the pro-life position. In fact, there are pro-life groups that are, strictly speaking, atheistic or secular. There's Atheists for Life. There's Secular Pro-Life. There's Pro-Life San Francisco, whose executive director is an atheist and doesn't believe in the God of the Bible but is a committed pro-life activist, okay? Because if you're willing to lay aside the ideology and propaganda of our cultural institutions and politics that insinuate that there is such a thing as human non-persons, namely unborn children, and you're willing to open your eyes to the science, to the reality of the humanity of the child in the womb, then it's clear to all of us that it is objectively wrong to kill these humans. So the pro-life position is not strictly speaking a religious one. So that assumption in that myth that because there's a separation of church and state, therefore pro-lifers shouldn't be imposing their religious beliefs is a mistaken one. However, what does the separation of church and state even mean? People don't understand what this means when they say that, okay? <laughs> when people say there's a separation of church and state, they often use that to mean that people who have passionately held religious opinions should be kept from attempting to enshrine those positions in our legal system. But that's not what the separation of church and state means. It strictly means that the government, the state, should not be endorsing or requiring the adoption of an adherence to a specific religion. We, we can't have a state religion because that would run counter to freedom of conscience, our freedom to choose how we want to live our lives. And if the state is requiring the adaptation of or adherence to a specific religion, that runs counter to the idea of natural rights. It doesn't mean that the church and religious individuals, though, can't seek to enshrine in law policies that reflect their religious views. We have complete freedom to do that. The church has the freedom to utilize its platforms. The people of the church have the freedom to utilize their platforms and their beliefs and attempt to create a society built around their world view. And by the way, the concern from these critics in preventing religious views from being promoted legislatively is only applied to Judeo-Christian religions, isn't it? It's an incredibly selective rule. What do I mean by that? Well, leftism is a religion. Secular humanism, which one can argue is, is truly the dogma or religion of the left, is itself a religion. It has religious beliefs that there is no God, right? It has a mystic view of the soul called body self-dualism, which teaches that the real you, the real you is not your body. The real you is your aims, your desires, your relationships, your consciousness, your self-awareness. That's the real you, your feelings and emotions. Your body is just a shell and you'll discard it at the end of your life. It has nothing to do with the real you. And how do we see this play out in the religion of wokeism, in the religion of leftism? Well, transgender, transgenderism and abortion, namely. Transgenderism, which suggests that though you were born as a man, as a boy, 
If you think you're a girl, then the real you is tucked inside there somewhere. And that real you is a little girl. Doesn't matter that you're actually a boy because the real you is not your body. This is why they can insinuate that not all humans are persons. Because the personhood theory that goes along with body self-dualism teaches that having value and being a person presupposes consciousness, viability, self-awareness, desires, aims, relationships. And because the unborn doesn't have that, it doesn't matter that they're biologically human. They're not a person. So they have this very mystic view of the soul. That's a religious view. And they have a view of truth, namely that there is no objective truth. Except the truth that they're very convinced are objectively true. Like killing babies is reproductive health care. And boys can be girls and girls can be boys. So their truths are, of course, objectively true. But otherwise, there's no objective truth. This is a religious dogmatic view of the world. But nobody's calling for the left to be prevented from seeking to enshrine in law policies that reflect their worldview. And they do have a worldview. So that's the first myth, okay? That there is a separation of church and state, and so pro-lifers shouldn't be imposing their religious beliefs legislatively. Of course, this will never come from actual committed pro-lifers. It will only come from those who are seeking to create myths out of whole cloth seven weeks before a presidential election in order to rob votes away from the only political party reasonably situated to end abortion. So what's the second myth? The second myth is that pro-lifers either can or should Vote for Democrats. Vote for the Democratic presidential candidate because, you know, Democratic policies actually decrease abortions. <laughs> Isn't that what you want, pro-lifer? Less aborted babies? So look, look at this data. Look at these stats I found. Look, in the last uh, four Democratic presidents' uh, administrations, abortions decreased. So you should vote for Democrats if you're a pro-lifer. <laughs> and I've literally gotten two or three Facebook messages within the last 36 hours or something of people saying, Seth, what do I say to this? I didn't know this was true. And here, so here's what's wrong with it, okay? Firstly, it's a straw man argument. It's a straw man argument. They're not even attacking the heart of the matter, the issue at question. The goal for the pro-life movement is not lower abortion rates, although of course, we'll celebrate that when it's accomplished. The goal of the pro-life movement is to make abortion illegal and unthinkable. Illegal and unthinkable. So here's a couple questions. Do Democrats want to make abortion illegal? <laughs> Insert laugh track. <laughs> of course they don't want to make it illegal. It's in their platform. It has been for decades. That twisting and tearing the arms off of children in the womb or poisoning them to death with an abortion pill is reproductive justice, as Julian Castro horrifically failed Democratic presidential candidate said. Reproductive justice, reproductive health care. So no, they don't want to make abortion illegal. If they did, then why is every major pro-abortion organization pledging millions to elect Joe Biden and giving them the National Abortion Right Action League's 100% approval rating for serving Molech? Of course they don't want to make abortion illegal. Do Democrats want to make abortion unthinkable? Well, considering they exclusively refer to abortion as reproductive health care and justice and the unborn is tissue and part of the mother's body, I'm going to go with no. They don't want to make it unthinkable. They're participating in euphemistic doublespeak bigotry to make the reality of the child in the womb skewed and to make the horror of what abortion does to the child in the womb sound really good. That's what euphemisms do. So, of course, they don't want to make it unthinkable. Now, we, the pro-life movement, pro-lifers, want the culture to be aware of the humanity of the unborn 
and the inhumanity of abortion. You know, Aristotle, many, 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 many years ago, <laughs> once said that statecraft is soulcraft. Statecraft is soulcraft. This means that law functions as a moral teacher. The state, through its actions and policies, actually participate in the secular discipleship or formation of individuals in how they think about morality. Law functions as a moral teacher. So in relegating actions to the realm of legal and illegal, government actually prescribes which behaviors are and are not acceptable in a civilized society. This is how law functions as a teacher. For example, no-fault divorce laws. Was it any coincidence that divorces skyrocketed after that? No, because law functions as a teacher. And when the next generation grows up in a society in which the government is telling them that divorce is fine and really easy to do, then it communicates that it's not all that bad. This is also why the abortion rates skyrocketed right after 1973 when abortion was legalized, because it sent the message that it's actually about women's equality and feminism. Now, unfortunately, we as Americans have been far too susceptible to the political messages sent and equating them with morality. And we have some responsibility to bear in that. But it bears repeating, law functions as a teacher. And the left understands this. This is why they wanted to legalize gay marriage, and they were successful. This is why they wanted no-fault divorce laws, the breakdown of the family. This is why Black Lives Matter, who says we're committed Marxists, and we want to disrupt the Western-contrived notion of the nuclear family, is silent on the fatherlessness rate in the black community. Because they want to break down the family. They don't want to support legislation that will improve families and require personal responsibility. The left understands this. It's about time we do as well. We used to, but we seem to have forgotten it, at least in large swaths of the conservative movement. You cannot restore recognition of the unborn's humanity, right? That's our goal. So long as the people holding public office support the intentional killing of the unborn and believe that babies are not babies, we won't be able to achieve our goals. Ridiculous, ridiculous myth. Vote for Democrats because abortions will be decreased and therefore that's what faithful pro-lifers ought to do. Law is a reflection of what society is willing to protect and value. Even if abortion rates are lower during the administration of a president who supports abortion, it's not really an achievement in the long run because it further entrenches and enshrines the fetal bigotry of choice and communicates to the next generation that it is freeing and empowering for you to get an abortion. You're throwing off the shackles of the patriarchy and asserting your right to choose and design your life how you want over the mangled, bloodied arms and legs of your child who became an acceptable sacrifice for your career well-being. As long as we communicate that message to the next generation, with the which the Democratic Party is fully on board with communicating, the pro-life movement will never accomplish its goals. So no, pro-lifers can and should not, cannot and should not vote for the Joe Biden-Kamala Harris ticket because, oh, they're going to decrease abortions a little bit. So that's the second myth. And that's the first problem with the second myth, rather, is that it's a straw man argument. We're going to spend the most time on this one because it's the most 
insidious and I see the most pro-lifers falling for it or confused by it. The second problem with this second myth is that it confuses correlation with causation. So let's suppose the numbers do drop during a democratic presidency, the numbers of abortions. Well, so what? Why should we believe the two are related in the first place? There, there could be other trends that influence abortion rates during a democratic presidency. Now, of course, I know people are going to say, well, no one can prove causation. Yes, proving causation is very difficult to do. Sometimes all we can do is prove correlation. But still, the point stands. We don't know if it's purely because of democratic policies. And we certainly know it's not because they want to decrease abortions. <laughs> My friend Nathan Apodeca makes a great point regarding this error in this myth. He makes the point that pro-lifers often step up their game when a pro-choice president is in office, both in the movement and amongst pro-life politicians, because they know that there's a greater threat to the unborn and to the pro-life movement when a Democrat is in the White House. So they increase their efforts to advocate on behalf of the unborn and provide resources to women in crisis pregnancy. Right. This is what conflict does. Conflict should bring out the best of us. Sometimes it brings out the worst. But it functions as a call to duty because you recognize that there's a threat that needs to be dealt with. So that makes sense. But during a Republican presidency, unfortunately, such efforts may end up decreasing because sometimes, unfortunately, complacency sets in, right? Pro-life Republican politicians might not be as committed to advocating for life because there's less of a threat to the unborn when a Republican is in the White House. So people see greater efforts to protect the unborn in law, so they make less of an overall effort themselves. And this could also impact the rate as well. So correlation doesn't necessarily prove causation. Now, many people will say, well, the reason that they're decreasing is because Democrats and the Democratic president, president and his administration, what they do is, is they, they focus on the underlying factors of what drives a woman to get an abortion in the first place. Isn't that what you want to do, pro-lifer? The heart of the matter, the root cause of an abortion? Now, most pro-lifers would say the root cause is bigotry, is the bigoted view of the unborn, is the dehumanizing view of the unborn, that they're not really full persons. And so because they're not really full persons, their dismemberment is somehow acceptable. That would be the root of the problem that the pro-life movement would diagnose. However, Democrats, of course, will say, well, it's social. It's social issues, right? It's economic issues or it's systemic racism issues. And if we can just deal with those issues, then women won't kill their children. So we should focus on the cause and root of abortion, which Democrats will do better. So you should support them, pro-lifer. But many times this critique comes from pro-choicers, from people who want to keep abortion legal. So why should we care about reducing abortion if it doesn't intentionally kill an innocent human being? This is what pro-lifers asked to Hillary Clinton years ago when she said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Why should it be rare, Hillary? You have a 100% approval rating from the National Abortion Rights Action League. You, you love abortion because you don't believe it's a person with rights. So why should it be rare if it's not a person with rights? If it's just a blob of tissue, then... There's no moral demand to make that action less, to decrease those abortions. Now, imagine someone saying that, well, you know, the underlying cause of spousal abuse is psychological. So instead of making wife abuse illegal, we need to provide counseling for men. <laughs> we need to... We need to address the underlying causes of what drives men to punch their wives in the face in the first place. But don't make spousal abuse illegal. Just focus on the underlying root and cause. And Democrats do that the best.
ridiculous. <laughs> Everyone would say, no, first we should definitely like make it illegal for like men to beat their wives. And then maybe we can talk about the psychological effects driving men to do that <laughs> besides being a degenerate. Okay. And lastly, one could argue quite credibly that there are underlying causes for all types of evil behavior. There's underlying causes for rape, murder, and theft. But that hardly means that it's misguided to pass laws against them. So the unequal application of this rule that we should address the underlying causes that lead people to perform evil actions and not ban the practice in question gives away the game. It shows that they don't really believe the unborn to be a full person, a full human under the law with equal dignity, value, and worth. These are merely myths created at a politically opportune moment in order to steal votes away from the Republican Party by indoctrinating squishy pro-lifers and fake conservatives who will be susceptible to these myths. And the last problem with this second myth that pro-lifers should vote for Democrats because Democrats actually decrease abortions by addressing the underlying factors that lead women to kill their children in the first place is that it's morally irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the moral question of abortion. Whether abortions decrease as a result of Democratic administrations or not is beside the point. Because small decreases in the state-sanctioned slaughter of innocent human beings, while worthy of celebration, is irrelevant if the very party that fake pro-lifers and pro-aborts are telling us to vote for in order to decrease abortions continues to defend and expand such slaughter. It's irrelevant. A party that dehumanizes babies and puts at the top of their platform the promise to defend third trimester abortions and fund it with your, with your tax dollars will only further enshrine fetal bigotry and the more people that accept that view of the unborn, the higher the abortion rate will be. Because when you dehumanize someone out of existence, it's more easy to accept their mistreatment and slaughter, isn't it? A similar argument, by the way, was made during the debates over slavery. <laughs> Did you know that defenders of slavery would actually argue that the states favoring abolition, so these would be the pro-life equivalent to pro-life states, the states favoring the abolition of slavery tended to have greater rates and instances of racial prejudices against African-Americans. Pro-slavery Democrats would actually argue that by seeking the abolition of slavery, these more abolitionist states were increasing racial tensions because racist plantation owners, nearly all Democrats, were very accustomed to their lifestyle. And by threatening to take away their human beings that they bought and treated like cattle, was going to increase the circumstances and instances of racial prejudice. <laughs> so vote for Democrats. <laughs> vote for the party of slavery and the instances of injustices and violence against people of color will decrease. It's literally the same ridiculous, repeated tropes. But even if that was true, it didn't prove anything substantial because the humanity of the slave and the inhumanity of slavery was what the focus was on. The focus was not on decreasing instances of racial violence, though we would celebrate that when accomplished. The goal was to make slavery illegal by re-enshrining the humanity of our black brothers and sisters and communicating the inhumanity of slavery. It's the same with abortion, because if the unborn are one of us, then shouldn't we make laws and policies to protect them from being unjustly killed? 
I would think so. And the Democratic Party has zero interest in doing so. So we're going to get to more political myths in uh, on abortion in just one second. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. We went through all the great perks that you'll have access to by supporting the show at the top of this show. So head on over there, patreon.com forward slash unaborted and pick a perk. Pick a tier, join our team. That really means a lot to us. And that way, I hope to interact with you more through the special access that you'll have through supporting the show. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show. So we are debunking five political myths on abortion that we hear basically every four years that are used as a political tool and strategy by people who aren't very concerned about the babies killed in abortion to siphon votes away from the only political party, the Republican Party, that stands any chance of enshrining the right to life to unborn children. And ending abortion. And that first myth is that because there's a separation of church and state, pro-lifers shouldn't be allowed to impose their religious beliefs on others. We debunked that one. And the second myth was that pro-lifers can or actually should vote for Democrats because, you know, Democratic policies actually decrease abortions. Don't you want to decrease abortions? Don't you want less babies killed? You should vote for Democrats. We've debunked that one. Now, the third myth is go something like this. Critics of the pro-life movement will say that you can be pro-life and vote for Democrats because no one should be a single-issue voter. And Democrats help address many other important life issues, right? Here we go. Here's the whole life perspective that we covered last week in the debate with Michael W. Austin on the question, do pro-lifers need to apply their beliefs to more than just abortion in order to be truly pro-life? Or can we maintain a narrowly focused approach with a singular goal, to end abortion. Whole life advocates insist that if pro-lifers were really pro-life, they would support a bunch of leftist justice items, right? Like open borders or universal health care or a universal basic income. And they would be more vocal and involved with ending systemic racism and ensuring that we never get into a war again. So in other words, they confuse contingent evils with absolute evils. They insist that protection of life in the womb is morally equivalent to quality of life outside the womb, which is a morally outrageous statement. Most of the issues that whole life advocates insist that pro-lifers adopt and act upon are actually issues aimed at improving quality of life for those already born and those individuals it is not legal to kill. The pro-life perspective is about protecting life in the womb for a class of human beings that it is currently legal to kill. Right. So that's your quick summary of the pro-life versus whole life debate. But that's the assumption that drives this myth that you actually should vote for Democrats because you shouldn't elevate abortion in a moral hierarchy. You have to hold all of these issues together because they all relate to life. Right. You're called the pro-life movement. (laughs) So therefore, vote for Democrats because they address more life issues is ridiculous. Right. So the assumption is that abortion is morally equivalent to healthcare, economic inequality, poverty, and war. They're, they're all the same. Okay. Now, abortion is not the only issue of our day, obviously. 
any more than slavery was the only issue in 1860 or killing Jews was the only issue in 1940. But both were the dominant issues of their day. While many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. Abortion is an absolute evil. And we should not divert votes or organizational resources away from ending absolute evils in order to prevent contingent evils. And let me tell you what I mean by that. This distinction is important between contingent and absolute evils. For example, war is a contingent evil because it may or may not be wrong, right? This is the idea of a just war theory. You could find yourself in a situation in your foreign policy and as a country where not going to war would be wrong because of the international threat posed by an evil regime whose actions are endangering and slaughtering their own people and would wish to do the same to your people. I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, Hitler, a crazed loon who was rounding up human beings and slaughtering them literally in a systematic way and wanted to take over the whole world. Yeah, it was a good thing that we fought that war to end that evil. That would be a just war, right? So war is a con- can be a contingent evil because it may or may not be evil. But abortion is an absolute evil. As Scott Klusendorf points out, these critics are asking us to overlook an absolute evil in favor of preventing contingent ones like economic inequality, right, or war or unjust immigration laws or poverty. Now, here's a thought experiment for those who insist that you can't be a single issue voter and you have to balance, you have to juggle all issues equally. If all political realities were equal, right, all political realities being equal, if the current disagreement over abortion was instead a disagreement over the moral question of slavery again, would these critics still insist that one cannot be a single issue voter? but ought to consider all relevant issues pertaining to life before voting. Of course not. If all of our political realities were equal right now, but the issue in the hottest contention, besides systemic racism, was not abortion, but slavery, which actually is systemic racism, then would the same woke progressives insist that you cannot be a single-issue voter, even though you're doing that to end the institution of slavery? That you can't be a single issue voter because you know what? The economic equality of plantation owners is morally equivalent to their purchase of human beings and whipping them and treating them like cattle. You know, the 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 fair wages of the middle class white people during the 1850s. You have to take that into consideration. Don't be a single issue voter on slavery. No, everyone becomes a single issue voter when the issue is slavery, don't they? But they don't on abortion. So what does their unequal application of this opposition to single-issue voting reveal about their view of unborn children? It reveals that they don't really view the unborn as a full person. Shocker, newsflash, all of this linguistic, euphemistic bigotry is just a political strategy to siphon votes away from Republicans who, though imperfect, are the only reasonable political option for people living in reality, that killing babies is really bad and we shouldn't enshrine that in law. That is their goal. But the knife cuts both ways, doesn't it? If we ought to balance all issues 
directly or tangentially related to life before voting, then the Democratic Party nominee is automatically disqualified for being pro-abortion and failing to uphold the first and most important of all natural rights, the right to life. But they're not going to apply their own rule to their own ideology, are they? No, because if the left didn't have double standards, they wouldn't have any standards at all. This is merely about undermining the pro-life movement seven weeks, six and a half weeks before a presidential election. So that's the third myth, that you can be pro-life and vote for Democrats because you shouldn't be single-issue voters and Democrats help address more other life issues that are really morally equivalent to killing a million babies every year in their mother's wombs. The fourth myth goes something like this, and this one is becoming more common right now. Abortion is here to stay, people say, right? It's a constitutional right. It's been determined. The law has spoken. The courts have spoken. So let's stop exhausting ourselves with our divisions on abortion, causing unnecessary division, and let's just pursue unity and work together on other important issues. This is the perspective of people who frankly admit to a certain degree of what they call fetus fatigue, right? Fetus fatigue. It's people who are just sick and tired of the abortion debate. Some pro-lifers have used this, used this term. Certainly pro-aborts use this term. I'm just tired of the debate. I'm fatigued talking about it. I don't care anymore. Let's focus on something where we can find common ground and unity and accomplish something together, right? Let's just move on to issues where we can agree because that's real progress, right? Real progress is ignoring the fact that an entire class of human beings are being denied the first and most important of all rights. Let's just pretend they don't exist, right? As Hadley Arcus says, let's filter them out of sight, not acknowledge that they bear the injuries of choice, and the example from this week is John Kasich, right? He's the former governor of Ohio who just last week was on an interview with Megan McCain, the only conservative on that garbage program, The View. And she asks him why he's willing to support Joe Biden. Because John Kasich has come out and said that he's going to vote for Joe Biden. He supports Joe Biden. In fact, he spoke at the virtual DNC rally saying we were at a crossroads and he was literally standing at a crossroads. And he said, we need to support Joe Biden because he uh, fights for the soul of the country. You know, he needs to unify us. This is the message, right? Ignore the dismembered bodies of babies who it is currently legal to kill. And let's maintain the appearance of unity on other issues. So when asked what he thought about being pro-life, but supporting the most radical pro-abortion ticket in American history, uh, that promotes abortion through the day of birth and promises to use your tax dollars to fund it, he says, well, I disagree with Joe Biden in a number of areas. I don't like some of what he's talking about in capital gains taxes. But the issues here are dwarfed, in my opinion, by the fact that he's a person that can pull us together. So listen to what he said, right? He's asked a question specifically and exclusively about abortion, and he starts talking about capital gains taxes. <laughs> he's creating a moral equivalency, between disagreements over taxes and disagreements over slaughtering babies in the womb, right? He's asked a question on abortion. He said, well, I disagree with Joe Biden on a number of issues, you know, like taxes. But the issues, plural here, are dwarfed by the fact that he's a person that can pull us together, right? So unity over the bodies of murdered babies, right? Tax rates is morally equivalent to abortion. He says, so I do think that if he wins, that all of a sudden, all these things that are going to happen are negative? Do I think that? No, I don't believe that at all, because that's not his character. That is not who he is, 
right? He's trying to convince squishy pro-lifers that Joe Biden is not a radical, that he's not just a puppet that Kamala Harris will be operating until that puppet falls apart and she becomes the president of the United States. He's trying to convince people that Joe Biden is a safe vote because he's going to pull us together, right? So murdered babies just become an acceptable sacrifice for the appearance of unity. Lovely. Now, people accused Lincoln, right, the great anti-slavery, the great abolitionist president, of causing unnecessary division by making too much of slavery, right? People could have told him that they were, they, you know, they had slave fatigue, right? Ah, stop talking about slavery so much, Lincoln, I'm over it. Same types of critiques, by the way, from the same party, <laughs> holding the same bigoted view of persons, that not all of them are persons. And people accuse Abraham Lincoln of treating slavery as a litmus test of the republic, as sort of a gauge of the moral compass of the country. But we understand that such division was important and necessary to pursue justice and ensure that the promises of the Declaration were granted to all human beings. That division had to happen, you see, because it was unacceptable that the institution of slavery was being allowed to operate and being praised and expanded by the Democratic Party in a republic founded upon the idea of natural rights. So the question is not about whether you like or dislike division, whether you're tired about the abortion debate or not. The question is whether such division is warranted, if there's a moral warrant to create such division, given the countervailing benefits of the injustice that you're trying to end and the justice that you're trying to re-enshrine. For example, the Democratic Party and their domestic terrorist arm, Black Lives Matter, fully justifies their violence and creation of division because they believe it is warranted, given the alleged threat to black lives by America's police force. Now, regardless of the debate over the realities or fantasies of systemic racism, the claim is the same. The claim is that there is injustice and such injustice warrants creating political division. But the same people who are willing to burn, loot and riot because we have to create this division, right? Because we have to be anti-racists are the same people saying that they're just sick and tired of the abortion debate and pro-lifers should just lay down their arms so Democrats can control the debate and the policies over abortion. It's almost like the selective application of the rule gives away the game, <laughs> that they're just using it against their political opponents for political gain. Well, like Lincoln, the pro-life movement believes that as long as some human beings are not guaranteed the promises of the Declaration, we will continue to be what Lincoln called a house divided. His famous speech, right? On June 16th, 1858, in Springfield, Illinois, at the Republican State Convention, where Lincoln was selected as the Republican candidate for, <clears throat> for U.S. Senate against Stephen Douglas, right, who he later debated in the famous Stephen Douglas debates, he preaches, he gives this message, right, this speech, and here's part of it. He says, we are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed, right? 
This division has to continue until we reach a breaking point, a crisis. And he says a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Well, folks, the new slaves of the Democratic Party are unborn babies who are treated the same way as black Americans were by that same party as non-person pieces of property. The same party that enslaved black Americans by insisting that the slave was not a person and their enslavement was necessary in order to protect plantation care and economic stability. Today insists that babies are a slave to the mother who created them and their dismemberment is necessary in order to protect reproductive health care and a stable income. It's the same message. It's the same bigotry. That is not unity. And those who claim that aborted babies can be sacrificed on the altar of national unity are confused or evil. There can be no unity in a country that continues half slave and half free, where an entire class of human beings are denied their most fundamental natural right, the right to life. So a simple question for those spreading this myth that because abortion creates unnecessary division, we should set it aside and pursue unity on other issues. Question, should unborn humans be included in the political and national unity you desire? Do all human beings in America get to be granted protection and unity? No, you exclude unborn human beings because you're a bigot and you don't believe they're persons. That's really what is at the heart of this debate. And this is why this myth is ridiculous. It's based on a fantasy and it's only being used as a political cudgel at a strategic political opportune time in order to undercut the pro-life movement and their goals. So next, I want to get to the fifth and last myth here that is being spread on abortion at this time by people who really don't care about the unborn. But before I do that, I want to introduce a new segment of this show, okay? Today, we're launching the first segment of what we're calling the 60-second pro-lifer, all right? The 60-second pro-lifer. And I know that I give you a lot of content and a lot of resources and tools of thought in this show so that you're equipped to defend life. But, you know, I know we create long episodes. I know there's a lot of content here. I know you're busy. So we're going to create this little segment in each episode of 60-second response to pro-choice arguments so that you can – well, maybe we'll go ahead and put the uh, – the timestamp in the description as well in the podcast. So you can, can just kind of go straight th to there and we'll put these on YouTube and Facebook as well. We'll have a whole little video series of them. So the 60 second pro lifer and the first one we're going to do today is, of course, on the most popular argument, the argument from rape. Now, of course, I've addressed this full length before. I spent four or five minutes on this, but I'm going to try to give you 60 seconds. We'll do this each week on a variety of arguments for abortion. I won't really rehearse these. I won't really prepare for these. I'll just... Time myself, give you my 60 seconds, and then you'll have sort of a, a running resource of quick responses to pro-choice arguments. And if you become a patron of the show in, I believe, the $25 or $30 tier or above, then you'll also get access to the downloadable PDF content that we'll create <clears throat> for these resources. So <clears throat> here we go. Let's press 60 seconds. What do pro-lifers say to the pro-choice argument from rape? Is abortion acceptable in a pregnancy that arises from rape? Well, there's three parties involved, the rapist, the mother, and the unborn child. Should we kill the mother? No, of course not. She's an innocent victim. Should we kill the rapist? Well, he'd be the only one, right? He's guilty. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have harsh enough punishments for rapists. Should we kill the child? 
Well, no, the child is an innocent victim, right? So the question becomes, if the rape victim can't murder her rapist who is guilty, why should she be able to murder her unborn child who is just as innocent as she is? You don't get to kill Timmy because daddy did something wrong. You don't get to punish children for the crimes of their father. Abortion and rape are wrong for the same reasons. Both issues mistreat innocent human beings who have done nothing. We can acknowledge the psychological and emotional complexity and trauma from a pregnancy that arises from rape. And we can love the child and the mother, but we need to fully prosecute the rapist and not kill the child. Well, there we go. My phone even gave me a little beep. So there's our 60-second pro-lifer on the argument from rape, and we will get you that on social media as well so you can share that with others. So this fifth myth on... This fifth political myth, rather, on abortion is that pro-lifers actually can't vote for Trump because he isn't consistently pro-life. OK, he isn't consistently pro-life. And there's two ways that this mythical critique is used. <clears throat> the first way this myth is used goes something like this. And this comes more often from people who are pro-abortion or who say they're pro-life but really just pay lip service to the pro-life movement. It goes like this. Trump doesn't apply his beliefs to all issues, his pro-life beliefs to all issues, right? Didn't you know that he caged children at the border? Didn't you know that he separated children from their parents? Don't you know how he's mistreated women? Didn't you know that he called immigrants animals? Didn't you know that he called white supremacists very fine people? Does that sound pro-life to you? Okay, now I'm going to just kind of fly through these and then kind of provide a little bit of moral commentary on why these issues are not morally equivalent to abortion, right? <clears throat> Protection of life in the womb is not morally equivalent to uh, quality of life outside the womb. So regarding this claim that, you know, Trump caged and separated children from their parents, they were never throwing children in cages, okay? They were, they were fenced enclosures that were actually quite large. Now, were they comfortable? No, it wasn't like staying at the Marriott, okay? But when you break U.S. immigration laws, I don't know, should you be granted a room at the Marriott? Probably not. Now, the separation of families actually began under Clinton's Flores policy and continued under Obama's policy. And the photos that were released several years ago of children in large caged enclosures that were used to say Trump is caging children were actually taken during the Obama era. Then Trump signed an executive order to keep families together and Republicans asked for additional funding at the border to increase the number of beds. And guess what? Democrats refused to pass it. Okay, so there you go. So this is not an example of failure to be pro-life because all that is required to be pro-life is to speak and live and act as if abortion is wrong. Now, if instead of denying entry to illegal immigrants, we slit their throat upon legal entry, then it would be morally equivalent evil, right? Because you're intentionally killing innocent human beings without proper justification, but that's not what's happening. What about mistreating women? Yes, that's wrong and immoral. The way that the president has talked about women and the stories that we've heard about his past relations with women have been wrong and bad and evil, okay? Now, we haven't heard any allegations within the last decade or so. I believe they're all from a long time ago. Does that make those past ones okay? No, it doesn't, okay? But it just means that he doesn't appear to be living that way anymore, and I'm not aware of any illegal activity or any actual assault charges, sexual assault charges. Now, in an ideal world, I want my president to have massive personal integrity. Yes, of course. But at the end of the day, when presented with two options, I am more concerned with policy integrity, which affects far, far more people than a leader's personal foibles. The integrity that you show through policies is going to affect 330 million Americans. 
right? At least if it's on a federal level. Now, your personal integrity and lack thereof is not going to affect nearly as many people. Now, there could be bleed over between personal and policy integrity, of course, but I haven't seen any truly evil, right, policies that are denying Americans their natural rights. Now, what about calling immigrants animals? Well, no, he actually called MS-13 animals, and that was just a classic fake news um, claim that was used to discredit the president. What about calling neo-Nazis and white supremacists very fine people, right? This is referring to Charlottesville. Uh, that didn't happen either. Go watch the tape. A sentence or two later, he said, quote, and I'm not talking about neo-Nazis and white nationalists. They should be condemned totally. Okay, but this critique is based on a faulty understanding of the term pro-life. Pro-life is not about improving quality of life outside the womb. It's about protection of life in it. And anyone who conflates the two is not truly pro-life. To be a pro-life president, one must speak and act as if abortion is wrong by passing laws aimed at ending abortion and protecting the unborn. The job of the government is to protect life, liberty, and property. Now, I can't think of a policy or law Trump has passed that has explicitly denied Americans their right to any one of these. However, the Democratic Party has shown us they're willing to attack and deny all three of these natural rights. Life to pre-born children, life to elderly patients whose, I guess, Children should be able to forcibly euthanize them. Liberty, look at the draconian shutdowns by governors, nearly all Democrats across the state, denying the rights of their people to liberty, to work, to freely associate where they choose, and to run their businesses in accordance with their best judgment. And of course, the right to property. Once again, Democratic <clears throat> governors refusing to accept federal aid or send in state troopers or officers to put a harsh stop to the rooting, looting, and burning by people who are destroying Americans' property, okay? So that's the first way people craft this myth, by saying pro-lifers can't vote for Trump because he isn't consistently pro-life, and he's not consistently pro-life because look at all these other issues he's bad on, right? Now, the second way this is used, this idea that Trump is not consistently pro-life so we can't vote for him, is actually in a very different way by very different people, <clears throat> okay? This claim goes that Trump doesn't even consistently apply his beliefs to abortion, right? That he's not pro-life consistently for the unborn. And this claim comes from people who are self-described abolitionists. Now, I don't, I don't really like this because if you seek the abolition of abortion, I, I guess you're an abolitionist, right? But these are people who, who try to create a line of demarcation between themselves and the pro-life movement. They're, they're called immediatists, okay? It's this idea that we can't, we can't seek the incremental legislation of abortion, saving savable, saving savable, savable lives now while working towards total abolition. No, we can only accept the immediate abolition of all abortions, that that's the only acceptable or righteous position to take. Okay, so these people call themselves abolitionists or immediatists. So they insist that pro-lifers cannot vote for Trump or any other politician that accepts exceptions in pro-life legislation, <clears throat> right? As you're probably aware, most pieces of pro-life legislation have some type of exception, meaning it stops short of a total ban. So it sometimes it'll make exceptions for abortions because of rape or incest, often um, before eight weeks, for example, in 2019, the huge wave of pro-life laws that were being proposed and passed, nearly all of them <clears throat> would have banned abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detectable around eight weeks, for example, okay? Now, does that mean we don't want to protect all babies? Does that mean we don't care about babies that are conceived in rape or incest or are younger than eight weeks? No, it does not mean that at all. The pro-life movement is 
working within the current political realities. And those political realities usually entail the fact that you won't be able to get the political capital you need to pass pro-life bills that will save babies if it includes a total ban on abortion. And plus, because of the lawsuits that will always be filed by the ACLU, the greatest legal enemy to the unborn, and because of this ridiculous precedent cases we have of Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, a total abolition bill would not stand in our current political environment in any state. So these abolitionists or immediatists claim that incremental policies that limit the evil of abortion insofar as we can are an affront to God and his commandments, which are do not murder. They actually accuse pro-lifers of deciding who lives and who dies, right? Because by including an exception, they're accusing pro-lifers of saying, well, you're saying it's okay to kill babies conceived in rape. Ridiculous, right? That we're not deciding who lives and who dies. The courts did that when they said that no babies have a right to life. Now, nobody has defended the incrementalist approach better and debunked the political silliness of immediatism better than Scott Klusendorf, right? The president of Life Training Institute, where I serve as West Coast director. He wrote a piece in Desiring God on January, in January 2020 called Abortion Dies by a Thousand Votes. And he points out the problems with this perspective and accusation. And I want to hone in on this because some of you listening to the show and many pro-lifers, I, I do believe they have a good heart. Like they so want to see the abolition of abortion and they're so tired of the continued slaughter of babies that they truly care about that they are susceptible to new, hip-sounding, shiny political strategies that they think might pose pr or provide a better success rate at ending abortion. I get it. But when you break down the political realities of suggesting that we can accept nothing but a total abolition, the perspective completely breaks down. So Klusendorf points out the problems with this perspective and accusation. He says that it assumes that pro-lifers have the power to immediately end abortion, but simply won't. This is not true. He says that we're not deciding which children live or, live or die. The federal courts did that when they ruled that no unborn children have a right to life. So everyone is an immediatist in principle, right? Because we would abolish abortion today if we could. But we can't. So we work legislatively to save as many lives as we can now while working towards total abolition. Right. That's what we do. And by the way, this is what what reformers have done historically who sought to end other types of injustices. Secondly, Klusendorf points out that the immediatist argument assumes that no steps are better than any steps or some steps. Right. He says, how does it follow that because we can't save all children, we shouldn't try to save some? Pro-lifers are not the ones compromising when we support incremental laws aimed at limiting the evil of abortion. Rather, the pro-abortionist is compromising because he's forced to give ground on the current status quo, namely that any child can be killed at any point in pregnancy for any reason, right? And lastly, he points out that Wilberforce in the British colonies, who is almost single-handedly responsible for entering the slave trade and slavery, was an immediatist in principle, but an incrementalist in practice, just like pro-lifers in the movement are today. Klusendorf says, Wilberforce pursued both strategies simultaneously, as do pro-lifers today. He did not compromise on principle, only on tactics and strategy. When you don't have the votes, you get what you can while you continue working for complete victory. For example, Wilberforce supported legislation to refit slave ships to reduce suffering. He introduced limitations on slave trafficking in shipping ports. He did all of this while working tirelessly for complete abolition. 
he took these incremental steps to secure the votes to eventually ban the slave trade altogether. And he was successful in doing so. So pro-lifers are not compromising or selling out by voting for the only electoral option that will lead to the best chance of restoring personhood to the preborn, restraining the evil done by abortion, and promoting righteousness insofar as we can, given current political realities. Now, can Trump have been even more pro-life and done more on abortion and for the unborn? Of course. But suggesting that because Trump isn't perfect on abortion, therefore pro-lifers shouldn't vote for him is not honorable. It's foolishness. And if large swaths of pro-lifers took that advice, we would merely be securing the victory of our unborn neighbor's greatest political enemies yet, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Even though these individuals care about the unborn, their political strategy, which we can, which is we can accept nothing but a total and immediate ban on abortion, leads them to not vote for the only political candidate who currently provides the best choice and option to protect unborn children, further the goals of the pro-life movement, and end abortion. So even though they don't hate unborn children like the critics who craft these myths out of political cloth, they're doing the same thing. They're siphoning votes away from Republican pro-life politicians who, while flawed and imperfect and are probably not as pro-life as we would like them to be, are the only political option available now to save lives while working towards total abolition. We're not choosing which children live and which die, okay? And, pro, and Michael J. New of the, of the Charlotte Lozier Institute has done research showing that pro-life laws save babies. Incremental pro-life laws result in saving babies. They are savable if we pass this legislation. But if these abolitionists and immediatists have their way, those children would be sacrificed on the altar of their political and moral Purity, so that they can tell themselves, I didn't accept any exceptions in pro-life legislation. We're not compromising. We're seeking to limit the evil done as much as we can and promote the good as much as we can, given current political realities, okay? So that's the fifth myth. The fifth myth is that pro-lifers can't vote for Trump because he isn't consistently pro-life, either because uh, he's not applying his pro-life beliefs to all these other issues, or he's not consistently applying his pro-life beliefs to abortion itself. Both are myths, so I hope that was helpful. This is a little bit of an evergreen episode. Maybe we'll replay this right before the election. But these are the most five common political myths on abortion being spread right now by people, again, who care very little for the unborn, except for the abolitionists, who care very little for the unborn and are doing so in order to siphon votes away from pro-life candidates and undermine the pro-life movement and their goals. Call them for the myths that they are. Share this episode with others. Well, thanks for joining in today. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a rating and review, please. It really helps. We want to reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and go onto my website, sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. I'm beginning to post more regular blog posts over there. You can subscribe there, view my speaking schedule, subscribe to my newsletter, and we want to equip and train you to defend lives. I'll see you on the battlefield. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.